Wow. How's it going, everybody? Today I have Milo Wolf on. Uh, Milo is, uh, you have a, well, you're working on your PhD, right? In range of motion and um, muscle growth, right? That's correct. Yes. Cool. And uh, so you have a, uh, you work, you have bachelor uh, exercise science degree, correct? Currently? Correct. So a bachelor in sport and exercise science from Loughborough okay. University. Nice. Awesome. What, what made you uh, want to pursue a PhD? Um, so I'm quite interested in bodybuilding, powerlifting, hypertrophy in general. And so when I had to choose whether I would pursue online coaching full-time uh, after my undergrad or whether I wanted to get some more education, I essentially thought, okay, if there's one topic I'm interested in, it's hypertrophy. Um, and I could see myself spending three years researching just that. Yeah. On top of that, um, I'm working part-time as an intern right now for Renaissance periodization. And so longer term, Renaissance periodization mostly hires doctors and pretty yeah, educated that. people. And so if I eventually want to work with them full-time, it makes sense for me to get a PhD. So it's a combination of it's good for my career. You know, it gives you a lot more credibility. Um, and also it enables me to work with RP full-time potentially. And also yeah. just, I'm really interested in sports science and hypertrophy training. And so if I spend yeah. more time doing that and learning about it, it doesn't hurt, you know? Yeah, I'm sure. I, um, so, so the end goal would be potentially work with, with RP. Is that kind of what you're thinking? Yes, correct. Yeah, awesome. um, likely do some coaching, but also some more creative work, like maybe writing books, something like that. Um, because I enjoy coaching, but I also enjoy more creative um, endeavors. So. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm sure I'm starting to look like an RP shill because I've just had so many RP people on at this point. Um, hey, you have to. No, really, I think I think they kind of lead the way as far as like uh, sport and exercise science, at least in our industry currently. Um, and I think it's great. I mean, they, they have really well-educated, really smart people involved with their brand. And I think they hold that kind of prestige. So that's awesome that you're getting involved with them. How did you find them? Definitely. Is it just like... Sure. So I was going to say, um, they definitely lead the way in some ways. So for example, I'm currently discussing funding from a PhD with them. So they also mm. got their way to fund science itself. Oh, wow. Yeah. Very helpful. Yeah. Um, so the way I came across RP in the first place was, I must've been around 18 or 19, starting my undergrad. Um, and I started getting into Renaissance periodization stuff. And eventually I heard that they were having a seminar in London in 2019, I believe. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to introduce myself to RP, Dr. Mike, et cetera. And so I went, uh, learned some stuff, introduced myself, um, offered to help them out on a few smaller things. And eventually that sort of snowballed into um, some paid jobs, now a coaching internship, working on the scientific principles of the factory training book, uh, which I did the scientific editing for slash tech references, made sure it was on point. Um, oh, awesome. Yeah, so it's that's where it started at a seminar in 2019. Oh, that's really cool. I didn't know you uh, had uh, any involvement in that book. I just finished it for the second time, and it was it was awesome. Wow, I mean, second that's time. My, that's, that's cool. Yeah, well, I mean, I feel like the only way I can actually retain it and use it is if I go through it a bunch of times. So, and I relearn. Yeah. It's like it's like a movie where you just like watch it over and over again. And you just learn something new every time. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's my first introduction to like sports science, and it was it was awesome. Really, okay, it was very digestible and. 
um, not having that like background in education, being able to read that was really cool and, and actually process it. So man, I mean, good job, whatever involvement you had in that book is awesome. Thank uh, you. Cool. Did, so, you find yeah. it, did you find it easy to access? Because I imagine if it's your first introduction to sports science, it might be a bit overwhelming. Um, yeah, I mean, I thought that going in. I, from just like, I've been training for like 10 years. I knew some of the verbiage. I actually knew most of the verbiage already. I basically, my, the way I got into sports science, so like at least being, being interested in it, obviously I don't have an educational background in it. It was uh, watching podcasts. Like I literally started watching Steve's podcast, watched a bunch of episodes with Mike, then started watching just like more deep dives. And um, with that and my experience, I was able to read it and comprehend it uh, pretty well, I think. I mean, I had to definitely look up some terms and stuff like, um, uh, those that like the, the fiber, um, alignment or something. There was some of those terms where I wasn't super familiar with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I had to look that up. Um, otherwise I, I was able to, um, understand it pretty well. I didn't have to do any of the prerequisite reading, even though I probably will go back and do that. Um, so yeah, no, it was great. It was great. Just with the year or whatever I did watching podcasts, I was able to digest it pretty well. So yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so how, uh, let's go back a little bit. How did you find bodybuilding and then like kind of where did your passion come from? And then, um, I noticed that you, you mentioned you want to coach and you do coach. Um, so like where, how did you get to that, uh, essentially? Sure. Um, so my passion for bodybuilding came a long time ago when I was 14 or 15, I stopped playing football. Um, and I realized, okay, if I don't want to gain a bunch of weight, I had some, concerns about body image back then as well so it's like okay if i don't want to gain a bunch of weight um i should probably do something else instead and so i signed up for a gym but back then in the country i'm from belgium you can sign up for a gym if you're under 16 you have to get someone else to go with you and so i had my mom sign up with me but she never went but i went by myself yeah. um so i started when i was 14 or 15 initially i made all the mistakes you could think of from trying a ketogenic diet while being underweight um, to doing ab days and tricep days and very much a bro split. But then eventually with time, I stumbled across stuff like Strong by Science or Strength Theory back in the day, um, started getting more and more into sports science. And eventually when I was 16 or 17, I decided if I'm going to go to university, I want to go to sports science because lifting weights was one of the things I enjoyed the most, whether it was learning about it, um, I actually coached a few of my friends back then. Admittedly, I probably did a terrible job, but it was still an experience and it got me yeah. through the whole thing. Um, and so, yeah, when I was 16, 17, I decided to get into sports science. Uh, back then is also when I started becoming an insomniac and I sort of switched back and forth from more strength style training. So focusing more on one RMs for squat bench deadlift and also Apache training. But then eventually once I got to university, um, I competed in powerlifting once. I got some experience with strength training, but I eventually decided I just enjoy hypertrophy style training more. There's more variety involved. Um, it's more volume, more time spent training. You can tailor it a lot more, whereas with strength training, you have to be pretty specific. Um, so yeah, eventually I just fell in love with bodybuilding training. And I would say for now, that's my main focus. Nice. Yeah. Um, well, I wanted to go back a little bit because I wanted to touch on um, your experience with insomnia and, and, and how that maybe affected you, what you learned from that as well. Because I do know some people, I mean, there's sleep is 
it's often like, I feel like talked about people like you need to get your sleep and then people don't actually practice good sleep hygiene. So it's like, it's like, uh, such a underlooked and then they're, you know, in the gym with their massage gun or getting cryotherapy, sleeping six less or less hours a night. So, um, what was your experience with like, with that? Uh, how have you developed routines around that now? And, and how, how did that change your perspective on sleep? Sure. Definitely. So I started getting insomnia when I was around 16 years old. Um, I don't really know what triggered it. I want to say it was like sort of higher stress, a higher stress period. And then once it gets mm -hmm. going, it becomes a habit. You start getting anxious about even sleeping in the first place. Yeah. And then it just becomes a vicious cycle. Like with a lot of mental illness, insomnia is a thing where it's a vicious cycle. So you don't sleep, for example, which then makes you more tired, which then makes you less likely to exercise the next day or be active or do things, which then makes you even less likely to sleep the next day and sort of it just devolves and devolves. Uh -huh. um, and the longer it goes on and on, the harder it is to get out of. And so when I was 16, it started happening. Um, for around a year and a half, it was quite bad, especially because I was still in high school at then and I was finishing education, which meant I missed a lot of classes. Um, I was also playing basketball at the time. Basically during those years, what I learned was having a routine helps, um, still forcing yourself to be physically active, lift weights, et cetera, also helps. The annoying thing with insomnia as well is, at least in my experience, and there is some evidence in support of this, it makes you perceive pain a lot more strongly. So you always feel like you're banged up. You always feel like you're injured everywhere when you train. Um, and so it makes you want to train less, but you have to push through that sort of initial tiredness, that initial pain, et cetera, to then improve your sleep the next night and sort of initiate a virtuous cycle whereby you train, so you sleep better, so you train more, so you sleep even better. And that sort of same reasoning applies to a lot of lifestyle changes you can make. So from stuff like managing stress, then leading to enhanced sleep to making it easier to manage stress some more. Same with training, same with um, having a consistent routine. So basically over three or four years total, um, I learned how to implement lifestyle changes a lot more and more. Um, I was on medication for insomnia for, I believe, three years total, uh, mm -hmm. which helped. But I think by far the main, the main treatment for it, or the thing that had the biggest effect on it was lifestyle changes, like having a fairly consistent sleep schedule, managing stress, just the main things like being physically active, a routine, a sleep schedule, being sociable, managing your mental health overall because oftentimes stuff like anxiety and depression can also impact your sleep and definitely does so it sort of feeds into they feed into each other i suppose yeah and so you sort of have to learn to deal with it as best you can do your best to treat it and then accept the outcome because you can only do your best and fundamentally sleep is outside of control once you've done your best you just have to accept the outcome and over time you can learn how to refine what you do to make it go better. But to some extent it is outside your control and you have to come to terms with that as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So it definitely does take some, some effort, some conscious effort, especially when you're tired. I mean, that's, that's the worst is when you are tired and you're trying to make yourself active. I mean, working and living it with impaired sleep, I've done it before and it's, it's hard. It really is hard. And, and I, I can't imagine to the extent that maybe you had it because <clears throat> um, I've had, I've dealt with it in a, in a couple of ways before, not to the level of insomnia, but um, 
uh, through anxiety induced uh, sleep apnea as well, um, which I didn't know for a long time uh, that I had. Um, but then I look back and I had all this, all the symptoms. And, um, and then there was a, a period of time um, in like high school or whatever, where I had this um, idea of like success being like you slept less, like you got up at four in the morning. And, um, and I remember training and like, I couldn't even press up a dumbbell without like pain in my shoulder. And, and I could tell, and I started to realize like when I had a bad night of sleep, cause I remember it would be really painful to train the next day. Like I'd be training calves and I'm like, this really hurts today. This is not, I didn't sleep well. Um, and it's really tough. It, it is a cycle for sure. I, I remember having times of, of, of it being cyclical where it was really difficult to get out of. And, and it's just like your whole quality of life just suffers as a result. Um, yep, so yeah, definitely. that's, I, I can, I can speak to that and then not even to the level of, of, of actual insomnia, which I'm sure is even harder. So, so essentially just good habits, you know, making yourself get active, make yourself be social. And then if you have like anxiety yeah. or depression, managing that maybe with a, with a specialist as well, probably smart too. Definitely. One more yeah. thing is um, oftentimes the first line of treatment for insomnia is sleep hygiene, which is stuff like, Oh, make sure your bedroom yeah. is cool, you know, dark. You don't take mm-hmm. caffeine after a certain time. And that's all correct. But I think for a lot of insomniacs, that's already taken care of. And so oh. obviously that goes without saying, if you're taking caffeine right before bed, maybe don't. Yeah. Yeah. Get, get the basics out of the way, right? Make sure your room's cool and dark and, and all that good stuff too. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. So I essentially, I wanted to talk, I've had um, Mike on the podcast and we talked about the volume landmarks. Uh, and if you're interested and, and, and don't understand them already, I would say go back to that podcast. It is timestamped. Um, but uh, we definitely, I want to touch on that today. And then I want to talk a little bit about um, auto-regulation. So essentially being able to um, look at certain things, certain um, objective and subjective measures in order to um, move through the volume landmarks, essentially. Um, so quick refresher, um, generally speaking, we talk about volume in terms of sets, correct? Um, and then the volume landmarks, if you could just briefly touch on those, you know, what each one means, and then, and then how do we move through those? Sure. Sounds good. So first of all, we do define volume as number of heart sets. The reason for this is in the past, people would use stuff like volume load, which is like sets times reps times weight. But Mm -hmm. for hypertrophy training, that has a lot of limitations. For example, you can't really compare exercises. Like for example, doing leg press, just because you get more volume load because you're lifting more weight and it's easier to lift more weight, doesn't mean leg pressing is better for hypertrophy than say squatting. Um, Then also on top of that, different rep ranges give you vastly different volume loads. So for example, doing a set of five on squats might grow you just as much as a set of 30 on leg extensions, but a set of 30 might give you a lot more volume load. And so long story short, volume load isn't that good for proxying stimulus for Apache. Mm-hmm. Whereas hard sets within a certain range of intensities or a certain rep range seems to be quite effective at proxying for stimulus. So as long as you're between say around five to perhaps 40 reps per set, and you're within say five reps of failure, it seems like most sets are pretty similarly effective at stimulating growth. And so a number of hard sets is a really good proxy for volume and thus also for stimulus. Yeah. Now, regarding how to progress through the volume landmarks. Okay, can I I stop you right there? Uh, One one question, I'm sorry. Um, Why don't we count only effective reps? Meaning why don't we count only five 
or closer reps from failure um, because I've seen people count volume that way as well. Sure. So there's actually a really good article on this on strongbyscience.com. Um, the long story short is it's too simplistic of a model to use. So it's not very useful. Um, it's not just the last five reps before failure that are effective. It's on a continuum from not very effective to quite effective, but each rep has its own stimulus fatigue ratio. Um, and it's likely that maybe around the last 10 reps before failure have a pretty good stimulus fatigue ratio. But even in the absence of all that, let's say hypothetically only last five reps before failure or stimulating muscle growth. In that case, why would sets of 30 reps be as effective at stimulating muscle growth as sets of five? Because then you're essentially doing 25 reps that are doing nothing, which isn't yeah. true. So you have to consider it's a bit more complicated than that, a bit more nuanced. Um, whereas hard sets say essentially, you know, all reps were effective to a certain extent, um, but the last five reps or so might be a bit more effective, but just proxying it as hard sets instead of trying to calculate effective reps is simpler and also likely better. So that's why we use hard sets instead. Yeah, as far as practicality, it's 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 much easier to, yeah, to track. Definitely. So. Okay, go on. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. So, uh, on the topic of how to progress through the volume landmarks, typically you're going to want to start around MEV, which is minimum effective volume. That's the volume you need to see any measurable improvement. Now, measurable is different from from any improvement at all, because hypothetically your minimum effective volume would be right above your maintenance volume because that's, you know, by definition, maintenance, if you add anything on top of maintenance, that's improvement. However, in practice, especially with muscle growth, improvements are slow and they're not easy to measure. Uh, same with strength. And so MEV is typically defined as the volume that gets you any measurable results. So perhaps an improvement in one of max month to month, or perhaps an increase in muscle size month to month, that sort of thing. So that's where you usually start from as a cycle. The reason we start there and not higher is because MEV is quite low and thus doesn't really cause much fatigue accumulation and sets you up for a longer mesocycle. And the longer mesocycle is better as far as spending more weeks training hard, seeing results, etc. Whereas if you were to start higher, you would run into fatigue issues earlier, have less time to train before you need to deload and thus see less growth overall. So you start MEV and you also start a higher reps from reserve, so farther from failure. Same reasoning applies here, where we have a lot of studies now where training farther from failure causes a fairly similar stimulus to training pretty close to failure. So say training four from failure versus training one rep from failure, they seem to cause pretty similar stimuli, stimuli, sorry. Whereas the fatigue they induce, you know, is not comparable. Training closer to failure does induce a lot more fatigue. And so if you're starting a mesocycle cycle and your concern is getting some stimulus while minimizing fatigue accumulation to set you up successfully for a long mesocycle, then it makes sense to start farther from failure with lower volumes, some results. And then as you move on and on and your body gets used to a certain amount of volume, for example, let's say you repeat the same week of training 10 weeks in a row. The first week you might see pretty good results, but then as you become more trained and as you become as your body becomes more used to a certain stimulus, your MEV actually increases. And so if you were to just train at the same volume all the time, you wouldn't see results. You'd have to either increase volume or take some time off of training or train less to allow your MEV to drop again. 
in this case, because you just started mesocycle, taking some time off doesn't make sense because otherwise you barely spend any time training and improving. Um, so the only reasonable thing to do is to increase volume a little bit. And so week to week, you increase volume a little bit to stay above your MEV. And as you go closer and closer to your MRV by increasing volume week to week, you start running into more and more recovery issues. At the same time, because you want to see improvements, not improvements, increases in weight on the bar and also increases in how close to failure you do train. As I said, while training closer to failure does increase how much fatigue you impose, it does also cause a bit more stimulus. And so as you progress through the weeks, you want to increase the volume and you want to go closer to failure. Eventually, your fatigue is going to increase so much that you're going to have to deload. And so the week before a deload, it makes sense to reach MRV or perhaps even above it. The reason for this is if you're going to spend seven days, aka a week, training pretty easy anyways, you can cause a lot of fatigue and recover from it just fine because you have seven days to recover before your next training block. And so at that point, you want to take that extra stimulus that comes from really high volumes and training quite close to failure, even at the expense of extra fatigue, because you'll have seven days to recover from it. In addition, we now have some evidence suggesting that functional reaching, so going beyond what your body can recover from for maybe a week or two at a time, might occur for apatry as well. And so training a bit more than your MRE for a week or two at a time might actually cause more growth than staying just shy of it. And so overall, going from MEV to MRV makes sense. Initially, start MEV with four or five reps in reserve for the sake of minimizing fatigue while still getting good stimulus. And then as the weeks go on and on, and you need to increase volume <coughs> stimulus to stay effective, you increase volume, and then eventually you're close to MRV. And the week before deload, you can push quite hard, go close to failure, deload, drop the fatigue, and repeat. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was going to ask, I, I, I was watching another podcast with uh, you and um, I noticed you mentioned um, the the proxies for MEV um, and how you like to use, you don't necessarily use the algorithm that RPs determine. Maybe talk about RPs algorithm and then kind of what you use. Um, from my perspective, I just started programming um, for my clients like this and I generally use the algorithm. So I essentially have them right there. Um, their blood muscle connection and, and all that stuff. Um, how, how does that work from, and this is kind of maybe a selfish question, but from a practical standpoint for you, um, how does that, how does that work? I'm sure you have to coach and, and how do you um, look at that um, over the internet, you know? <clears throat> sure. So I assume you're referring to how RP uses my muscle connection, pump disruption and stuff like that to, 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 to regulate volume each week. Yeah. 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 Sure. So for clarity, I think those proxies can be kind of useful for exercise selection when you're comparing different exercises. Like let's say you're trying to establish whether you want to use high bar squats or front squats for quad growth. Um, I think then looking at how much pump you get, how much disruption you get, how much you're feeling tension you get, et cetera, that can be quite helpful there. Yeah. But I think week to week, um, pump, my muscle connection, et cetera, aren't ideal for regulating volume. The reason for that is I think stimulus is going to occur regardless, as long as you're training with sufficient volume, sufficient uh, proximity to failure, and so Good forth. technique. Exactly. And that should be taken care of already, independent yeah, of yeah. my muscle connection and everything. Right, um, right. But then what's really limiting your stimulus is how much fatigue you're accumulating. So I would prefer looking at stuff like performance and soreness more so. 
Soreness is a decent proxy for a few things. Um, it's useful because it includes pain perception. So let's say you're highly stressed or your sleep's less. Soreness does also account for how you perceive pain. And generally speaking, when you're sleep deprived, for example, and recovering not as well, you perceive pain a bit more strongly. In addition, mm -hmm. soreness can be a proxy for muscle damage. And that's also a measure of recovery. Yeah. But then by far the main indicator, in my opinion, of performance and recovery is whether or not your performance is increasing or decreasing week to week. And so in sports science, performance is defined as a recovery of performance to baseline. Yeah. So let's say you train chest on Monday, you did uh, 100 kilograms for 10 reps. If on Thursday, you're not able to repeat that same performance, by definition in sports science, you haven't covered. If you're able to repeat that performance or even do more weight for more reps, then you have recovered and even adapted. And so I think by far the main indicator of whether to add volume each week should be performance because that's the, that's the, I guess the chief indicator of whether recovery is occurring because performance essentially accounts for a lot of things from muscle damage to psychology to um, stuff like whether or not you get a glycogen, fossil creatine, just yeah. everything combined. Performance is essentially a gross outcome of many smaller factors, even including soreness to an extent, like muscle damage. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to look at one thing to determine whether you recovered and whether or not you should add volume, that should be performance. So I think performance is a much better indicator. It's also a lot easier to measure and a lot, probably a lot more reliable and precise than stuff like most connection, which is a bit more effective, a bit more um, based on perception than performance. So. I prefer performance most of the time. Yeah. No, I mean, I think uh, RP does use that. So uh, the MEV stimulus um, algorithm is the mind-muscle connection pump and um, disruption, soreness. Um, and then and then the set progression is uh, soreness and performance. So essentially, I've built those in um, and I try to have my clients rate them. And then I look at, I don't know if you ever use um, like fatigue index. So like looking at how much reps drop off as well. Yeah, sure. Like I'll look at performance, like what they rate obviously. And then I'll look at the fatigue index. Like if they're doing the same reps across, um, you know, four sets then, and, and they're at like a two RIR may not be, um, likely that they are, um, maybe at the correct RIR or whatever, but I don't know if you ever use that or look at that. I, I heard, uh, I think Menno Henselman's talking about using fatigue index as well. Sure. So I think fatigue index might be helpful, but it's, I think how much your reps drop set to set is dependent on a lot of factors Yeah, from your fiber type <clears throat> to how well recovered you are to your glycogen, to okay. your psychology, to rest time between sets. There's so many different factors that unless you compare fatigue index at different time points for the same person. So let's say your fatigue index in mesocycle one versus now, um, obviously the same person, so a few things might change, like, oh, how much are you eating? Um, how well are you sleeping? That sort of thing. So yeah. then it's a lot more indicative of recovery. Whereas if you compare fatigue indexes amongst different people, like let's say me or you, you know, you might be faster to twitch, you might be more advanced. Um, and so comparing fatigue indexes here doesn't really help. But if yeah. it's within the same person, then it might be helpful, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, definitely. And um, it depends on the exercise too, like how much fatigue does that exercise uh, create like if it's a you know uh, a barbell squat right that's going to probably create 
generate more fatigue than like a seated exactly. lateral raise on a machine, which the reps may not drop up as much. Um, yeah. Yeah. As no, I, yeah. Go generally ahead. speaking, exercises with a big gap between the systemic fatigue they incur and the local fatigue they incur. So think about squats. Generally speaking, I think with squats, you don't see a huge drop off in reps compared to stuff like leg extensions. And that's because there's a huge gap in how much systemic versus local fatigue leg extensions cause. So there's a lot of local fatigue, but not a lot of systemic fatigue. And okay. so you don't have to rest as long. And so generally speaking, reps drop a ton between sets for leg extensions. Oh, okay. Whereas for squats, the gap is quite small. And so you have to wait quite a long time for local fatigue to become the limiting factor again. Mm -hmm. And so then you don't see as large of a drop off in reps. For example, when I'm doing leg extensions, it's not uncommon for me to do 20 reps first set and then like eight on the second. Oh, Whereas wow. for squats, it's something like, you know, eight reps on the first set, six on the second. So I think generally speaking, it does hold true that I've seen this in clients and myself as well. Um, exercises with a big gap between systemic and local fatigue. Um, they see a lot bigger of a drop in reps set to set. Okay. Got it. Makes sense. So the local fatigue because you're not resting as much and it's targeting a specific muscle most likely not incurring other fatigue is is why the reps may drop off a lot yeah that's what i think yeah that makes sense okay cool um so we were talking before this and i was like uh i wanted to ask you about um, um properly gauging rir because that's a really important part of this whole volume um you know if you're not training with with you know five reps in reserve you're not using the correct volume load between was it 35 and 80 percent of or an 85% of one arm? 30, or 30, 30 to 85%. 30 to 85, yeah. Um, of your one rep max um, and not, not caging, you know, you're not within five reps in reserve for an intermediate to an advance. Um, uh, it's, but you could probably make an argument that a beginner could probably get away with a little bit less potentially than five, um, but that's generally the area you want to stick around. Um, but I, I wanted to talk to you about gauging RAR because it's something that, I'm fairly new to, like, I've, I definitely had, uh, I've never, like I was using RPE a little bit when I worked under a mountain dog, um, but probably not accurately. And I was probably trying to bury every set, probably still had reps in reserve because I think when you don't, when you aren't aware of this, um, and you're like, oh, I'm training every set to failure practically, it doesn't work. And, um, you know, you burn out at some point. So, um, anyway, beside the point you, you had co-authored uh, paper on RAR. And I think I've seen some, um, some infographics about it around floating around. And that's probably why it was in the back of my head and why I wanted to ask you, but uh, maybe talk to me a little bit about that, that paper, um, and gauging RAR sure. correctly. Yep. Sounds good. So full disclosure, I'm only a co-author. So I did some work, but I didn't do all the work. Yeah. Um, Essentially, what we did was perform a meta-analysis, which is when you combine the results of several studies into one big result to see whether, as a whole, the literature suggests one thing or another. In this case, we combined all the results from, I think, around 15 to 20 studies total, okay. looking at how accurate people are at estimating reps from reserve. So basically, what most studies did is had people do a set. Uh, after five reps, for example, they would ask them, okay, how many more reps can you do before you reach failure? They would say eight reps, and then it would actually make them go to failure and check, okay, how big was the difference between what they said they would be able to do and how many they actually did? And so on the whole, this meta-analysis found that on average, 
across all populations, all exercises, all rep ranges, and so forth, people underestimate how many more reps they can do by one. Now, we also perform something called uh, meta-regressions, which is essentially when you look at the results of a meta-analysis, but account for certain factors. So for example, you look at the results of this study, but then account for stuff like training age and see how that result changes as training age changes. So for example, is are people more accurate at gauging reps and reserve when they're more advanced? Or when sets have more reps, are people more or less accurate? That sort of thing. And you can essentially establish, okay, as repetitions go from five to 30, how much less accurate do people get at estimating reps and reserve? We did a few of these, including stuff like training age, um, when during the set the estimate was given. So for example, if we ask someone after one rep out of 10 reps, how many reps they can do, or they're then less accurate than if we ask them after nine reps, stuff like that. And also depending on how many repetitions each set had, how trained they were and so forth. On the whole, as I said, people are on average off by one rep, they underestimate by one rep, but then as they become more trained, they might get a bit more accurate at estimating reps and reserve. It's definitely not a big difference. The main trends lied in people are a lot more accurate at estimating reps and reserve with low repetition sets. So stuff like maybe between five and 15 reps per set. But then as you go above 15 reps, people become a lot less accurate and it's a lot harder to push yourself to failure. And by less accurate, I mean, whereas on average people underestimate how many more reps they can do by one, when repetitions go above 15, they start underestimating how many more reps they can do by a lot more. So instead of one, it might go up to like five to 10. So they think they can do say 20 reps when in reality it can be like 30. And so one implication here would be when you're training with high repetitions, you probably want to push yourself a lot harder than you think you should. Whereas when you're training with lower repetitions and heavier weights, you're probably pretty accurate at estimating rest and reserve and you don't need to worry too much about whether or not you're training hard enough. Then another finding we had was generally speaking as when people were asked later on in a set to estimate reps and reserve, they were more accurate at predicting how many reps they had than if they were asked early on in the set, which makes sense, right? Like, let's say you're doing a set of 15. After one rep, do you really know how many reps you can do? Not really. Like, it's 14 more reps. That's very, that's a lot of right. reps. Whereas if it's after 10 reps, for example, you have a much better idea because you've actually seen the bar slow down. You feel the tension a bit more, et cetera. Um, so by and large, those are the main findings. I think they're very interesting findings because for years and years now, there's seemingly two camps. One camp thinks all powerlifters uh, overshoot their RPEs constantly. Uh, no one knows how to use RPE. It's terrible. Everything's burning. Um, we should really teach these powerlifters how to use RPE because they always overshoot RPEs and then claim it was a seven and when it was a nine. Um, yeah. And you have one camp which says no one trains hard enough. And those camps are seemingly always at odds. Like some people are like, oh, that was RP5 when it was like an actual nine. But then some people complain about people overshooting RP all the time. And so I think this meta-analysis should provide some clarity saying, look, overall, people are actually pretty good at estimating rest and reserve. Generally speaking, as we become more trained and as the weights are heavier, you get even more accurate. But if you are training with pretty high repetitions, it probably makes sense to put yourself closer to failure than otherwise. I just like this paper because, again, it provides some clarity on a topic that a lot of people argue about, especially in the trenches, where people are yeah. like, oh, not training hard enough, training too hard. And then when you combine this with nowadays, we have a lot of studies on how 
stimulating different relative intensities are. So whether or not, for example, training failure is better for muscle growth than training fibrosome failure. So when you combine those findings, we can basically say, look, people are pretty good at estimating reps from ZAV, but also as long as you're training within around five reps of failure, stimulus is pretty much taken care of. But as you get closer to failure, you might see more fatigue. That's about it. Right. Yeah. And maybe you, you recruit more, um, a little bit more faster yeah. threshold, you know, threshold motor units at the higher end. Yeah. It's really yeah. interesting uh, that you say that now, cause I've been following more power lifters as of recently. And I started, I noticed that that's kind of a joke, um, going amongst that circle is the RPE. And I didn't realize that until you just said that, like it kind of clicked like, Oh, that's probably a thing where, like you said, they, that people assume that they overestimate their RPE a lot. And then yes, it correct. Like I see that a lot with the people assume underestimating RPE, um, uh, in like the bodybuilding circle a lot too. Um, there's a lot, there's the, the, the hardcore train to failure all the time camp. Um, and that they assume that everybody's not training as hard. And, and it, it's difficult to like, look at a video of someone and say like, oh, like they're at this RIR because, um, like uh, one of the differences I've heard talked about is like, they may have more slower or faster twitch dominant muscles in that muscle group. Right. Um, but just kind of anecdotally, like watching some of the videos and some talking about like looking at some of these guys who say they train all out, uh, you know, technical failure or even beyond failure. And you watch some of them and they'll, they'll end a set at like what probably looks like a two to three RAR a lot of the time. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting to, to see that because um, maybe when you're not aware or, or, or even, you know, using an RAR RPE system, um, I, I don't know actually what really goes on. Do you have any um, guesses on why that may occur? Yeah. So I think you mentioned how powerlifters generally joke about overshooting RPE, whereas bodybuilders joke about people not training hard enough. I think yeah. that's kind of linked to culture as well, where bodybuilding yeah. has a fairly old culture and fairly like intense culture, whereas powerlifters is a much more recent culture, it seems like. And a lot yeah. of the powerlifters are new to the sport and it seems a bit more broadly evidence-based almost. Right. And a bit more sort of uh, analytical, calculated, whereas bodybuilding right. is still a bit more about you know Arnold and all that um <laughs> so I'm not sure if you've seen the whole Lyle McDonald uh RP feud that was going on a I've while seen back. some of it I, I yeah I saw some of the memes and or some of that stuff yeah definitely yeah um basically that whole debate just speaks to how different people's failure points look different um yeah do we know for sure that, for example, Mike was trained to failure? No. Um, can we ever know? Also, no. Because again, even if bar speed slows down and you quote unquote fail a rep, it doesn't actually mean anything. Like the only true way of knowing that you fail a rep is if you're, for example, like dead and you physically couldn't do one more. You can always fake a sticking point or slowing down the bar, which I've seen a lot of people do, for example, in practice where, you know, it's a hard set, you're training legs, you don't want to be there. So you start slowing down intentionally to make it look like you're really pushing hard and getting close to failure. When in reality, you're not actually getting close to failure. You're just slowing down. And if we actually made you push yourself, you get a few more. Um, and so in practice, I think that whole debate was a bit nonsensical and sort of useless because yeah. we'll never know. You can always fake it. Um, so fundamentally, I think 
people should just do their best because at this point, you know that training pretty close to failure is useful for growth. And so really the only person you're doing a disservice by not doing so is yourself. So try your best and then see what happens, I guess. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think just worrying about how hard you're training. I mean, I look around and, and I think it's kind of funny sometimes because of the, like where a set is terminated. Sometimes it might be like, okay, like this guy's saying he's just destroying himself and he's talking about going beyond failure. And maybe there's, there's, it's not what's happening per se. Um, especially when it's like, you know, even like five reps in reserve and you're just like, okay, that wasn't even challenging. Um, you know, maybe using like facial expression to a little bit and you know, whatever it, again, it's not objective and it could be, they could be right. Um, but I think also just worrying about, you know, how, you know, where you're at, right. And kind of focusing on yourself and, and, um, like maybe would you advocate for maybe someone who's new to this? Um, well, I don't know. Cause I've heard Mike talk about this and he said that like for a beginner, maybe you just, you just continue to add load or reps each week and eventually they'll get there or get close to there and then you deload. Um, and then maybe for an intermediate or advanced, maybe testing at the end of a mezzo before a deload that you're maybe at that zero just to make sure, Hey, I'm gauging this correctly because it does kind of look different across different lifts sometimes. Sure. So I think for beginners, because there's a very wide range of effective stimuli, like you can train quite far from failure and still see good results. Um, the main consideration should be proper technique. Um, I think they should lift as heavy as they can, as close to fail as they can with good technique. With good technique, yeah. Obviously, that's um, constrained by, you know, not going to failure all the time because then your stimulus fatigue ratio gets way out of whack and it's not good. But generally speaking, you're not going to go to failure as a beginner anyways. So that's not <clears throat> a big consideration. Um, the cool thing is now with the research I spoke about earlier, the people being studied in these, you know, in these studies aren't necessarily the type of people to train very hard. Usually they're, you know, slightly trained, recreationally trained, have been training for like a year on and off, yeah. you know, they're somewhat trained, but not trained by your standards, for example. Um, and yet still, they're accurate at gauging reps and reserve. And they're likely not the type of people to go to failure often and to test themselves and to really learn how to fail. And so I don't think there's a need to go to failure to learn how it is. Can it be useful? Potentially, especially if you think someone's consistently poor at estimating reps and reserve. But yeah. I think on average, yeah. it's probably not necessary. Um, so I think you could recommend it to certain people, but on average, I wouldn't necessarily do it. Yeah, I don't. I don't generally, especially. I'll generally, if I think someone's not there, I may, I may say something. I may not. I may just start adding load and reps, and then just extend their mezzo if I think it's like they're really not there, and just eventually they're going to get close to that. I'm like, okay, now we deload kind of thing. Um, I noticed that because I am somewhat new. Sometimes on that first week where I'm at three or four RAR. Uh, I used to overthink it so much. I'd walk out of the gym like, oh my God, like I can't, I don't, I don't know what I did. Like I totally undershot it, like whatever. Um, I've kind of learned to just not stress about it too much. Like I think the way I'm starting to approach it now is like, okay, I'm going to go in, I'm going to push, you know, relatively hard, but I'm not going to like, if I, if I, it's, it's probably better to be a little more conservative than to go too hard because it's harder to pull back when you go too hard. Um, and it's easier to add. Um, maybe a little more aggressively um, in the following week. No, if you get there and you're like, okay, this is really easy. Um, 
I don't know. What, what do you think about that versus, you know, because fatigue will accumulate faster, essentially. Absolutely. I agree. So let's look at the pros and cons here. Let's say you undershoot how close to failure you go a little bit. Cons, maybe your stimulus isn't quite as good as you would have gotten if you went a bit closer. Pros, however, do you know who Mike Sturdos is? I've heard of him. I don't know if I've yeah. actually looked into his work. So Eric Helms and him, for example, have been talking lately about how, you know, the figure of zero to five reps from reserve is often thrown around as being the effective range for or PE or reps in reserve. Mm-hmm. But honestly, from the research, there's some studies on something called velocity loss. It's basically how much bar speed people lose during a set. And they can be used as evidence for RP as well, because when you think about it, the closer you go to failure, the more of a speed drop off you see. And so essentially right. when you're saying 20% foot, uh, speed loss, you could be saying, okay, RP six, for example. Um, and from those studies, it's looking more and more like, actually, you might see pretty good results, even like eight reps from reserve, you know? So worst case scenario, you know, maybe you get a bit, a bit less stimulus, but maybe you actually don't. And then if you were a bit farther from failure than you thought, that just sets you up for a longer mesocycle right. because you have less fatigue accumulated. And so on the whole, it's definitely not a bad thing. Um, again, worst case scenario, you lose out on a bit of stimulus. Best case scenario, you get the same stimulus and you might even get a longer mesocycle. So I think it's fine. And I get how initially when you switch to RP training or, or IR training, you're really worried about, oh, was that RP seven or was it like an eight and a half? Or, you know, yeah. it's hard, especially when you're like at three or four. Um, but again, I think having those findings where on average people are one rep off in their estimation, that can be very comforting because it means, oh, it's unlikely that I'm way off. You know, I'm at least reasonably close unless I'm like an outlier, in which case you would probably know by now you've been training for 10 years. You know by now how, how accurate you are because you've trained to failure as well. Yeah. So yeah. I think it's comforting to have those findings. Yeah. I think, well, also psychologically, I think I've worked with a lot of coaches who are like, you need to bury it all the time. And so um, stepping away from that and kind of redefining, you know, what that is to me and like, and understanding it, like, it's, it's not, it's not like just a, it's not like just a, like a, I'm just going to fix it. It's like, psychologically, I feel this need to, and, and culturally there's, there's some, some implication of like, you got to push it really hard um, and you got to go to failure. And so being able to step away from that, even on a sub, maybe not a conscious level, acknowledging that, like, that's where my brain wants to go. Um, and, 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 and saying, okay, it's okay. Because this, you know, obviously at this point I'm very bought into the system, but, but maybe sometimes psychologically, I I'm not, um, I'm trying to, you know, I'm still identifying with that guy who needs to, to kill himself every time he goes in the gym. And I, I find myself constantly having to remind myself, Hey, look, let's be productive here. Like this isn't, you know, killing yourself as a productive. So you're saying that maybe even so, so, cause I, I watched one recently with, I think it was Eric Holmes and they were talking about like, maybe even farther RIRs are still effective, but he was like, people aren't ready to hear that essentially. Um, so that's, uh, that's interesting. Um, cool. Well, I, mean, I look, uh, yeah, there's always been, when you look at, for example, in powerlifting, Shiko or Shiko, I don't quite know how you pronounce his name, the powerlifting coach. Oh yeah. I've heard Shiko. Shiko, well. Shiko, yeah. Shiko. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't really know. Um, when you look at a lot of his programming, for example, it, always was quite far from failure. Like it was treated almost like, um, almost like weightlifting, I guess, where oftentimes because it's such a technical sport, you're not really getting close to muscular failure, but often 
And so you're doing, for example, triples at 70%, which is assuming you're an average person, maybe like 12 reps in failure, mm-hmm. but he's doing triples with that. And, you know, if you do enough sets and enough volume overall and you do it frequently enough, they still saw results. Does that mean, am I going to use like these 300 Russian powerlifting athletes as solid evidence for something? No, but right, you know, right. when you look at the evidence and it's just something, and then you have some anecdotes for it as well, it's at least a bit more likely to be true. You should look at it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so. yeah, I actually saw, I, I didn't, I didn't, wasn't fully listening to that podcast with Eric and, um, I think it was, um, Omar, but he did mention, um, the other gentleman who was on that. I can't remember what his name was. Um, but they mentioned, um, and, and this is off topic, but I'm actually really curious the bar speed, um, with strength training, like the actual, like, uh, how much, how fast and how hard you, you, um, perform the concentric, um, was, was, uh, I don't know, not more of a determinant, but it was, um, like you didn't have to be using, uh, uh, RPE seven or eight. Like they were finding that people were still improving in strength. Maybe, do you know any about that? I, I know it's off topic, but I'm actually curious. Sure. So I think Greg Knuckles on Stronger by Science has written a lot about this. Um, mm-hmm. basically for powerlifting, it seems like I'm going to use a very uh, dumbed down version of physics here because I don't know shit about physics and, you know, just how it goes. Fair enough. But uh, force equals to mass times acceleration, right? And so mm-hmm. you can produce a similar force output by moving a lighter load more quickly or by moving like a one of max quite slowly. And so for powerlifting, it seems like moving, say, 70% of your max quite quickly, like explosively on the concentric and everything, might be similar stimulus-wise to moving, say, 85% a bit more slowly. And so that might explain why doing, for example, triples at 70% might produce similar stimulus to saying triples at 85%, for powerlifting at least. For hypertrophy, I do think the training farther from failure can be made more effective by also training explosively by the same reasoning. Generally speaking, higher force um, outputs, for example, when you're lifting weight explosively versus slowly, um, activates more motor units and activates more fibers. Okay. And so thus potentially when you're training farther from failure, but you're being explosive, that might also increase hypertrophy stimulus. And that would make sense in studies where they measure velocity loss set to set or during a set. Um, because in those studies, they generally do instruct participants to lift explosively as well. And so I think for powerlifting, especially lifting explosively makes a lot of sense because you essentially want to move everything as quickly as possible even when it's heavy, yeah. as long as technique is good and you know, you're in a position and it enables you to lift as much as you can. For hypertrophy, I think nowadays there's broadly speaking two camps. One is my muscle connection, emphasis, control tempo, that sort of thing. And then one is more of a lift explosively. It's going to maximize motor unit activation, uh, fiber recruitment, that sort of thing. Uh, I personally fall more into the second camp because I think my muscle connection is going to happen if you lift proper technique and sufficiently close to failure and with sufficient volume, you're going to get a mammoth connection. Like uh, unless you're a complete beginner, you're going to get it. Um, and so I think focusing more so on bar speed, making probably each rep a bit more effective and also making sure that you're reaching sufficiently close to failure as well. Cause I think if you're focusing excessively on my muscle connection and how it feels that can detract from focusing on, okay, but I'm actually getting close to failure is bar speed slowing down. Um, 
So generally speaking, I do advocate more for a bore speed focus versus an analog selection focus for Apache. Yeah. Okay. But I can see, again, there's not actually that much evidence for manual connection empirically. So like yeah. literature-wise, yeah. there's been one study um, long-term during a program where people were told either to focus on bore speed or manual connection, but it's been one study. And even then that study didn't have particularly convincing results. And so I think for now, I wouldn't put a lot of stock into either approach necessarily. Okay. So maybe like, a, you know, like I, I actually heard, I think it was Eric Helms again, who's maybe not someone else. Anyway, they were talking about focusing on my muscle connection, uh, maybe actually um, decreased uh, muscle activation in the target muscle. Like when people try to focus on their lats, the uh, motor unit recruitment in the lats decreased actually. Yeah. So I've heard that sure. before. So that could definitely happen. One thing I'll caution against here, um, yeah. which isn't talked about at all, because a lot of people like to use EMG. Um, but EMG, you can't say because an exercise produces higher EMG that it's going to produce higher hypertrophy. That assumption is dependent on so many smaller assumptions along the yeah. way that it almost never holds true. There's right. actually a paper on this, which was published maybe a couple of years ago now, um, which we might be following up on soon in some more studies. But basically there's like five or six different assumptions that need to be met for that link to be true. And it's almost never true. And so people like to say, because EMG studies are so easy to conduct and it's an appealing idea. Oh, you know, muscle gets activated more, more growth. When in reality, it's a lot more complicated than that. And so, for example, when I see uh, Jeff Nippert videos where exercise selection rationale is based on EMG, I always raise an eyebrow. Um, I'd much rather base exercise selection off stuff like range of motion, um, whether the target muscle is limiting factor, um, convenience, practicality, and those sort of factors versus yeah. uh, this one EMG study in 2000 by a German dude in his lab with two participants who assumes that it's going to translate to hypertrophy, you know? Right, right. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I had a, I asked Jared, I'm sure you're familiar with Jared Feather. Um, he, I asked him about something regarding like EMG and he got so heated. Like I was just asking about like what he thought about someone saying something else. And I didn't realize I had like hit a button. He was like, uh, he kind of went off. He was like, yeah, like it's not, you know, like essentially what you said too, but I didn't realize it was like a sensitive topic. Um, but yeah, that's, 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 that's interesting for sure. Um, so, and, and like EMG doesn't necessarily measure, it just measures that a potentially that a muscle's firing really it's not like deep muscle fibers or anything i think it's something kind of what he said right yeah it's it doesn't measure what most people assume it measures i'm not super familiar with amg but basically it doesn't measure what you think it measures and then also just because you have a high mg reading doesn't then mean it's going to also stimulate your muscle quite well you can get high mg reading from like a an isometric contraction just as strong as you can does that mean an isometric contraction against no weight is ideal for growth no definitely not so there's a lot of factors that are involved and a lot of assumptions that have to be met for that link to be drawn. Got it. So, so, okay. And you mentioned this practical implications of this or, or takeaways, um, lift with, um, somewhat explosive concentric, watch the bar speed, maybe have a, uh, um, uh, some, uh, awareness of mind muscle connection as well, but it's not your priority essentially that, that kind of, all right for maybe a takeaway there yeah i think that's pretty good uh i think technique proximity to failure should be a main emphasis and then yeah 
Um, I think on the concentric, bar speed is good. And then on the eccentric, if you want to, you can focus on uh, my muscle connection, what have you. But because of the okay. bar, the limiting factor is always going to be concentric. You may as well focus on being as close to your concentric and pushing yourself as close to failure as possible there. Whereas in mm-hmm. the eccentric, you can afford to focus a bit more on muscle connection. Yeah, I think that's what I do without really realizing it. Like, I think what I'll do is I'll, I'll like uh, I was doing hack squats the other day. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll focus on exploding up, watching list or kind of paying attention to the bar speed. And then on the concentric, I'll go through my cues, like sit onto your quads, open up the hips. And, and through that, I'll feel more tension in the target muscle. And then obviously we're training in higher reps. You start to feel a burn sensation, right? Um, so that's okay, cool. I, I'm going to definitely pay more attention to that too. Um, I think being just aware while you're, you're training and not just going through movements is, is really huge too, at least always going through those cues. And that's something like when I train people in person, I'm just kind of drilling home is like, Hey, you know, go through the cues. Obviously technique is more important for that population though. Um, anyway, I'll get you out of here soon. I wanted to talk a little bit about your, um, prep really fast. Um, I, I noticed we're kind of coming up on an hour here. Um, you lost weight on vacation. How did you do that? And, and, that is uh, correct. And then kind of what's the goal with the contest prep when you have a show and all that? Sure. So um, I've been prepping for, I mean, in some way for like 13, 14 weeks. That's when I decided, okay, this is the show I'm going to compete at. Um, So in total, I'll be prepping for 23 weeks or so. Mm -hmm. Now, um, when I started prepping, I wasn't really sure when my show would be. So I started cutting quite early. And also it's my first time actually competing. Oh, wow. so, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's my first time competing. So I wanted to make cool. sure that, okay, um, I want to be in shape. If I have to start half the year before my show, just to make sure, I'll do it. But I'd rather start, start early and then have some extra time to, say, mass or maintain a bit than start late. Have to, like, diet really quickly, not get in shape, lose some muscle. You know, that's yeah, yeah. ideal. Right. For example, 3DMJ often advocate having at least a week per pound of fat you want to lose. And I think that's a good general obviously it depends on your body weight as well because i'm quite tall and fairly heavy for natural um right and so for me i might be able to lose a bit more but on average it does serve as a good rule of thumb um so i started around 23 weeks out um i started around 105 kilograms or 230 pounds and now i'm down to about 95 kilograms so around 22 pounds down so i'm around 208 pounds down. Okay. Um, for reference, I'm quite tall. I'm six two, so yeah, that's a concern. Um, but yeah, so I went on holidays for ten days just recently to Greece, and basically I didn't track much at all. I sort of know my, my calories. I'm around thirty two to thirty four hundred per day while cutting because mm-hmm. I'm quite physically active. Like I do at least fifteen thousand steps a day. Oh wow! Um, to help with hunger, essentially. Yeah. So while I'm on holidays, I typically had four meals a day. For two of those meals, I'd have a pretty protein-heavy and low-calorie meal, like, for example, protein shake, what have you. Um, and then for two meals, I'd eat out, try and make reasonably um, macro-friendly choices. But at the same time, I was on holidays. I had a schedule as well, so I wasn't too concerned with, oh, if I maintain instead of cutting for 10 days, not a huge deal. Um, yeah. But yeah, it turns out I weighed myself once during the holidays because I had a scale at a friend's house and I was like two and a half kilograms down over like five days. And I was like, oh, whoops. Um, I need to eat a little more. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, shit, okay. I thought I was, <laughs> I was gaining weight, not losing it. Right. Um, 
but yeah, so I managed to lose weight. Now my show is actually happening on the 31st of October. It's with okay. the WMBF UK. Awesome. Uh, again, my first show, I'm still only 21 years old. So I didn't realize you were that young. Jeez. I am quite young. Yeah. I wow. always get the, oh, you look 28, Colin. So uh, me too. Me too. <laughs> yeah. Wait, how old are you? 24. Fuck, man. <laughs> okay. I guess we both have yeah, the same problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, first show so far so good. I'm enjoying it. Um, it's weird to me that I'm already only nine and a half weeks out because I'm not that hungry yet. Like I could definitely see myself going into the show with no real issues as far as hunger wow. or binging renting goes, which is yeah. a good sign. Um, but at the same time, I'm very conscious that for my off season, I'm going to have to spend some time building a lot of muscle. And so the plan yeah. is after this show, um, spend somewhere between like half a year to five years in an off season, essentially. Right. Um, I've got reasonable legs and back uh, it's, and shoulders as well, but the rest needs to come up. And I'm currently 21, but when I'm maybe 24, 25 and my PhD is done and everything, I might consider um, going on special sports supplements, as they say. Oh, really? It's legal in the UK, so that's cool. Yeah, um, but until then, just build some more size. Focus, yeah, um, definitely. I don't really have any plans of creating powerlifting at the moment. So I think I'll just spend a lot of time in a bodybuilding offseason, building a lot of muscle mass in weaker areas. So that's the plan. I'm looking forward to competing. And afterwards, I'll decide whether or not I want to compete again soon or whether I enjoyed it or that sort of thing. So That's awesome. I think uh, you look incredible for your first prep at 21. Jeez, I didn't even Thank realize you. that. Yeah, having that. that, adding that into the equation uh, changes a little bit. Even, um, I mean, I, I definitely have always had a respect for um, natural athletes and being able to, you know, gauge like what that progress. Like, obviously, I'm looking at like Ronnie Coleman all the time and stuff, and being like, "Oh, that's impressive." But being able to, you know, look at someone who's who's not enhanced and be like, "Wow, that's really impressive," without you know the use of performance enhancing drugs. Um, I think that's essentially why when I ended up working with Jared too, was like looking at him and like what he is able to accomplish as a natural athlete. I think it speaks volumes um, to the work ethic and, and the patience and all that too. So definitely yeah. commend you for that. Um, why do you think that maybe you're not as hungry? I, a lot of people deal with uh, like hunger and obviously I know there's genetic component, um, but maybe uh, you're talking about high energy flux. So maybe doing a lot of steps and then maybe not having a super aggressive rate of loss. Maybe is that. Yep. So I actually wrote about this on the website like maybe half a year ago now, basically just hunger management strategies. Um, oh, okay, I think I things, skimmed yeah, that. Yeah. There's a few things you can do. Generally speaking, increasing energy expenditure through exercise versus eating less food. So creating deficit through NEAT, for example, versus um, <clears throat> eating less food and creating deficit that way. Generally speaking, that's better for hunger. It doesn't seem to increase hunger as much if you're, for example, walking more versus eating less. And right. so that's one thing I do where I keep my step count quite high. I hit at least... 15,000 steps a day, which helps a lot. Um, even just because it keeps you busy. And if you're not inside a house, it makes it harder to spend time eating. Um, then I think one sort of more lifestyle factor would be nowadays I'm quite busy with PhD work, with coaching, with training twice a day, a lot of days, yeah. with trying to still remain sociable. Um, Probably forget to eat sometimes, huh? Exactly, yeah. So yeah. that helps. Then generally speaking, Picking the right carb sources helps. So protein, there's not a lot of choice with protein. As long as you have a lean protein, you're essentially yeah. maximizing satiety from that already. With fats, 
unless you want to eat high fat, which I wouldn't recommend for bodybuilding necessarily. No. Um, the only remaining real option for satiety comes down to carb choices. And so I think you're sort of on a spectrum from higher fiber, higher volume, lower caloric density, lower GI, so glycemic index, to like yeah. high GI, high caloric density, high, uh, lower fiber, uh, higher caloric density. Mm-hmm. And essentially where, where you want to pick your carb source on that spectrum depends on how hungry you are. In a mass, you probably want to pick very calorie dense, high GI, yeah. low fiber carb sources. Whereas in a prep, you want the opposite. So like I'm eating a lot of vegetables um, from my carb carb sources, like more calorie dense carb sources. I'm still picking stuff like brown rice or sweet potatoes instead of like white yeah. rice or pasta, uh, which helps. Then I think experimenting a bit with meal timing and when you feel most hungry can help as well. For example, in the morning, because I have caffeine and stuff, um, I'm not as hungry. Whereas in the evening yeah. when I have more free time, I'm not working anymore. I kind of want to eat more. And so having more Same. voluminous meals at that point, like having a big salad, for example, like Matt always used to do in his YouTube videos. Yeah, um, I remember those. That can help. Um, one very weird tip that I haven't actually spoken about ever before, I think, not publicly at least, because uh, I fear that I'll be ashamed for it. Um, <laughs> so a lot of people are, to an extent, lactose intolerant. Okay. And when you check the symptoms of lactose intolerance when you eat lacto- like lactose or dairy in general um it's stuff like nausea and sort of bloating and stuff like that oh, and no. personally That's this is going to sound weird but i find it helpful to have like a fairly high lactose meal because it keeps yeah. me full on low calories just because i feel pretty like meh like bloated and nauseous yeah um and so i think during prep when for example i'm having fat-free yogurt in large quantities it actually helps with hunger to an extent. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think those are the main things. Uh, stuff like mindful eating. So making sure you actually taste your food, uh, making chewing. sure you're not just swallowing it without chewing. Um, right. I usually only use those if I'm very hungry because I like to watch shows or what have you while I'm eating. So if I'm really hungry and I know, okay, hunger's an issue now, I sort of just sit down, down and focus on the food. Yeah. So it's sort of like a more flexible approach where with food, generally speaking, you prepare it in advance. So you can't just make it up as you go. But with mindful eating, you can sort of tailor it to how you're feeling and auto-regulate essentially. Um, yeah. I would say those are the main things. Again, having a fairly slower rate of weight loss is helpful. Because again, I started my prep when I was like 22 weeks out. Whereas if I started like 12 weeks out, like a lot of people do, um, then I would have to lose weight quite quickly and I probably yeah. wouldn't be able to do it. Uh, and, and in general, so I mentioned before I was on medication for insomnia mm-hmm. and that medication was called, uh, in England at least, mirtazapine or Remeron, I think in the US. Okay. Um, and that is an appetite stimulant. And so one decision I made before starting this prep was come off the medication, um, which has helped with hunger as well. So I guess one final thing as well is manage your stress, manage your sleep, because those both play into hunger. Um, also yeah. how much free time you have. So that's playing to lean body mass retention as well. So that's correct. a huge thing too, which correct. in turn leads to hung, you know, hunger as well. But absolutely. Right. But yeah, so those are the main things. Um, so far, so good. I think I'm pretty good at starting myself. Yeah, <laughs> that's so. awesome. Yeah, I, I, uh, the la- I've only done one diet where I had a normal rate of loss. Every other coach has gotten me super aggressive and it was, you know, a diet that I controlled and it was awesome to not have to experience crazy hunger for once um so i'm really looking forward to my next prep 
I'm in that space where um, I've taken a long time off. And so I'm, you know, I've been how many years since I competed? Six now? It's probably oh, going to be okay. like seven. It's probably going to be seven when I actually step on stage next year. So I guess you've gained a lot of muscle mass and stuff. Yeah, I competed at, um, was I 190? Enhanced. I was enhanced. Um, mm-hmm. But I competed at 190 at, at like 5'11. And I wasn't, I probably wasn't as lean as I could have been. Um, and I'm 250 right now, uh, probably, probably in this, probably in this off season at like 265, maybe. So we'll see. We'll see. I'm, I'm excited. I took a long time off because I just wanted to stay focused and I enjoy the process so much. So that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll let you get out of here. Thank you for staying on so long, man. I really appreciate it. Um, thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. This was a great talk. I mean, I could talk to you for hours about this. I'm like trying to hold back questions right now, but, um, where can people find you? Do you have any spots for coaching or how does that work on your end as well? Sure. So you can find me on Instagram at Wolf Coach. So Wolf is my last name. I get that question a lot. Why am I called Wolf Coach? Because it's my last name. I saw that. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> Wolf Coach uh, on Instagram. I have a website called wolfcoaching.net where you can find stuff like coaching and uh, past blog posts about stuff like contest prep. Um, now with coaching specifically, I started an internship with Dr. Mike around July time. And basically since then, my coaching spots have been filled up. Uh, I've got quite a long waiting list. So if you're happy to put down a waiting list for a few months or a few weeks at least, um, I can put you down and I can get in touch afterwards. Um, Yeah, that's about it. In the meantime, a lot of my time is spent focusing on PhD as well. So I don't have that many coaching spots, but once I finish my PhD, which hopefully should be within... I'm going to say half a year to a year, if I wow. really set my mind to it. Um, afterwards, I likely have a lot more spaces for coaching. So, you know, stay tuned. Awesome. Yeah, man, good luck to you. That's that's really big. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I know that takes a tremendous amount of work. So really good luck. That's going to be, I think, it's a huge accomplishment, especially your age too. So, all right. Well, I appreciate you coming on and uh, keep in touch. I would love to discuss some of this stuff in the future too. Definitely. Thanks for having me. Yeah.